Hello, hello, and welcome to Dubliners by Dubliners. This is episode 10, and this month we'll be covering the short story Clay. As always, we have the story linked in the description, and if you want to check out our Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, we use the handle by Dubliners. One small point, if you've been enjoying the podcast, be sure to give us five stars on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you might be listening to. As always, I'm your host, Lachlan, and I'm joined by... John. John Puffetter. Great to have you, John. So this week we're talking about the story Clay, and we're going to be looking at themes of paganism, the idea of Samhain, and these Celtic traditions, and how they've been transplanted into the modern day, uh, or at least into Joyce's modern Ireland by um, the Catholic Church. Yeah, so so Samhain, or Halloween, is the date this story takes place, and there's a lot of traditions associated with it, and some of those traditions stem back to... Yeah, Celtic times, pre-Christian times. Um, so Samhain is, it's basically a harvest festival in the, in the Celtic calendar. So there's, there's four main festivals in the Celtic cal- calendar, they, they being Bialtna, Lunasa, Samhain and Imbok. And they happen roughly uh, equidistant throughout the year. And so, as I said, Samhain is, is the harvest festival. It's, it's when the, the people would celebrate the end of, of the harvest and they would gather together and celebrate it as a community. Uh, and there's a lot of traditions associated with it. It was also seen as being the time when the veil between the, the mortal world and the spirit world was at its thinnest, so that there was a chance that uh, dead people would come back and would appear on, on earth and that people would see them. Uh, a lot of the traditions then associated with town are, belong to that. Um, so some of, the, some of the things that people did was they would dress up and we can see almost immediately how that kind of translate to the modern Halloween tradition of dressing up, but the Celtic dressing up tradition, some people speculate it was in order to imitate the, the dead spirits that would be walking the realm. Others say it was in order to confuse the dead spirits, that the dead spirits might um, in some way trick you or wreak havoc on you or your family, but if they thought you were also dead, that you might escape their their uh, their wrath or their trickery. Um, and so then this, this kind of tradition of dressing up then gets extended then into the idea of, of trick-or-treating where folks would uh, dress up and go around door to door singing a song. Uh, they'd be, they were known as mummers so they would sing and perform and, and, and then they would expect to get some sort of uh, reward in, in exchange, some some food or some money or something. Yeah, thanks John. So I think as, as, as you know there, a significant part of the Halloween festival I suppose is, is that idea of the supernatural or spiritual world mixing with the the ordinary or the day-to-day world that we live in. Another one of the, the facets or features that has translated from this Celtic Samhain festival through and really from the kind of classic Irish mythology and Celtic mythology through to the modern day is the idea of the will-o'-the-wisp or the, the jack-o'-lantern. So a will-o'-the-wisp is this idea is essentially just a small fire that's sits above bogland as a result of the kind of natural decomposition of the material, creating a, a small fire that creates a, a very mysterious looking light across the bogs. The narrative that's built up around that is of um, a blacksmith did a deal with the devil for uh, some material possessions, a chair that nobody else could sit in, or if they did, they were trapped in it, and a lighter and I believe a stick. And the devil eventually came back to the blacksmith to claim his, uh, to claim the soul. And, and the blacksmith used these tools every time to defeat the devil and, and, and prevent him from taking his soul. So then when the blacksmith finally did die, 
he was rejected from heaven and was sent to hell and the devil refused to let him into hell so he was forced to continue wandering the uh, the earthly plane never never having a, a true place to rest and the lantern that he ca- carried with him became the, the jack-o'-lantern or it was perceived to be the will of the wisp so in response to this then you had kind of traditional celtic farmers would carve faces uh, into beets and turnips and these kind of root vegetables put a light inside them and, and use that to, to scare off or to threaten away the uh, the jack of the lantern or the will of the wisp and that's the origin of the, the modern pumpkin carving that we have today so again i think this is just a another indication or another kind of um, discussion of these very modern traditions that we have of halloween in the, in the quintessential idea are really tie back to a lot of the, this celtic mythology and these, these deep celtic roots and i think Obviously, at the time Joyce is writing, we wouldn't have had quite the Americanization, if I can use that phrase, of of, of the Halloween festival or the Sound Festival. I think probably the last one that we want to pick up on is, is probably some of the Halloween games and 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 why these were played. So, as as we've mentioned a few times, uh, during this period, the border, the barrier between the other world, or the ghostly world, and, and our world was was at its thinnest. So, a lot of these games based on prophecy or predicting the future were thought to have more meaning and, and, and context in this at this time due to that 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 weakening john if you want to tell us about some of these games yeah and, and we see some of these of course in the story uh the first one being the this idea of the the barn brack with a ring in it so barn brack is it's kind of a yeah like a, a bread or a cake with uh, some currants raisins in it and so it would look like a loaf of bread but in the middle of the bread would be a, a ring uh, would be baked into the into the barn brack and so the theory was whoever got that particular slice of the of the cake of the barn brack would uh, get married within the next year a second tradition that also appears in this story is uh, someone getting blindfolded and then having to select from a number of plates in front of them that have been um, mixed around and so each of the plates has a, has a different thing on it and depending on which plate is selected uh, it, it is supposed to predict what is going to happen to the person in the near future so if for example again if a ring is on a plate it means that you're going to get married uh, if there's a prayer book on a plate uh, you're going to go to the convent or to become a priest if there's like water on a plate you're expected to like travel across the ocean uh, and if there's clay on a plate which is again this, the story of the uh, the name of the story uh, it's expected that you're going to die and so yeah that's that's a key point later in the story um, and yeah some of, some of the other games that uh, that uh, traditional Irish Halloween games involve say like bobbing for apples where a bunch of apples we put in a, a basin of water and and you have to try and uh, pick it out with your teeth or hanging an apple from a string and you also have to try and take a bite out of it um, I think this was a uh, in pre-iPhone, pre, uh, pre-internet uh, days, I wonder if, if kids today still still get into it. Hopefully they do. I, 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 I have many a fond memory of uh, bobbing for apples during uh, the Halloween period. It's, uh, it's very difficult, though. Uh, but anyway, oh, yeah. uh, did you ever manage to actually successfully bob an apple? Uh, I did once, but at great personal expense, I would say, in terms of both <laughs> my... The, the dryness of my clothes and the, uh, the, the, the sanctity of my own teeth. But, uh, no, I did succeed. Um, yeah. It's interesting. A lot, of, a lot of the apple-based rituals were also linked to courtship. So the idea of bobbing for apples was that two people would sit or stand opposite each other 
and Bob for the same kind of apple. The idea is that your faces are, are, are getting closer and closer. There's a, a risk or a chance that the, the two young people might kiss. Um, similarly, there was a peeling an apple game, which involved seeing who could produce the most, the longest, most continuous piece of apple string peeled off, peeled off the apple, indicating the, uh, the length of your life and various other elements. So, there, there is, there is reference in the story as well to um, Maria, the main character, uh, purchasing apples for the children, and and again, I think this will feed into the into the narrative and the idea of the religious meeting or matching with the spiritual across this narrative. Yeah, absolutely. We've kind of talked a lot about uh, Samhain traditionally, and we've we've said how it's it's fed into these Halloween traditions, but. Uh, it also has, of course, a religious meaning in that, uh, as has happened, I think, often enough, is that the, the Catholic Church would kind of adopt elements of local pagan rituals and festivals and convert them into, into more Catholic um, feast days and so on. And so in, in, the, in the Catholic Church, you have two feast days very close to uh, Halloween. One is on the 1st of November, which is All Saints Day, which is meant to honour the, the dead saints. And then the, the 2nd of November is All Souls Day, which honours uh, everyone who has who's passed away. So I, I guess the, the element that the, the church took from, from the pagan festival is really this connection with death and this idea that uh, it's a day to connect with, uh, with, with those who have passed away. I mean, that, that, that's what Halloween is, is uh, Hallow's Eve or the Eve of All Hallow's Day, the, the day for the holy or the most hallowed of, uh, of individuals, the saints. Um, I think that that probably gives you a good context and, and, and introduction to the Celtic Festival Samhain and, and, and the significance of a lot of the events and, that occur across the story. John, I don't know if you want to take us through the, uh, the plot summary now. Yeah, let's dive into it. In this story, the main character is Maria, and she is working in the Dublin by Lamplight Laundry, which is a uh, an institution for women who are on the streets or maybe got pregnant or were prostitutes and they're the aim of the institution is to to reform them and uh, while also making them work in a, in a laundry we might discuss that a little bit later we meet her in the in the laundry and she's getting ready to leave for the evening to go uh, visit an old friend of hers uh, joe uh, joe uh, is uh, a character for whom she was uh, a nursemaid so she helped raise him and his brother alfie and uh, they're actually the ones who got her the job in this laundry. And Joe has now invited her, her over to his house to spend time with him and his family on Halloween. Yeah, so she's finishing up for the day. Uh, she has to wait for the for their evening meal to finish. And then she's given permission to go. Uh, she goes, she wants to bring some gifts when she arrives to the house. So she goes first to one cake shop. Uh, then she wants to get a plum cake uh, and she doesn't like the icing in the first cake shop so she goes to another cake shop eventually she then having gathered all her, her presents she gets on a tram to go out to Drumcondra where the family live uh, while she's on the tram she starts speaking to an elderly gentleman who looks a bit like a colonel uh, and through this conversation she gets a little bit distracted and so when she gets off the tram again to, to go to the house she forgets her her plum cake uh, they only she only realizes once she arrives and uh, there's a bit of a, a commotion looking for the cake she's very upset because she spent a lot of money a lot of her savings on this cake but eventually it's all smoothed over and then we get into the kind of the traditional halloween part of the evening where the kids from the neighbors come over and they start playing games they also have some nuts and yeah one of the the key elements of the story or where where we get this title play is again they play this this game of premonition that we we spoke about earlier where they place the 
the plates in front of different people and, and, and a few of the kids and so on try it before Maria. Eventually Maria is made to do it and, and she gets the clay. This plate is not supposed to be there. Uh, so the, the family presumably didn't want to have uh, such, a, such a negative prediction as, as you're going to die. But one of the neighbor kids has snuck it in. And so there's a bit of commotion, but then Maria is made to redo it. And, and the second time she gets the prayer book uh, indicating she's going to end up in the, in the convent. So af after the games, then uh, Joe presses upon Maria to, to sing a song uh, and she sings a, a song uh, we'll, we'll discuss a little later. And, 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 and as she finishes singing, Joe has, has tears in his eyes. And, and so that brings our, our story to an end. Thanks, thanks for that, John. It's an interesting story. There's a lot of moving pieces to this one, I would say. Um, the first one, and, and, and probably the first thing to pick up, and, and, and maybe this is one that we'll, we'll come back to again later, is the, the title of the story itself, Clay. So the the word clay never actually appears in the narrative itself, it's only in the title. In the absence of any obvious significance or meaning of that word, you're constantly searching through the text as you're reading it, at least for the first time, to find out why what, what, what is this clay referring to and what does this mean. Ultimately, it refers to the premonition plate of the clay that uh, Maria picks up in, in indicating her death. So there's a pallor of death, I would say, hangs over the narrative a little bit. And that really adds to the, the superstitious atmosphere that, that, that hangs over the entire story. Um, interestingly, originally, this was going to be called Christmas Eve. And some of the remaining or existing drafts of the, the early versions of Dubliners that we have refers to it as Christmas Eve. But... Uh, Clearly, Joyce made the conscious decision to move it to a different Eve, uh, being Hallow's Eve. Yeah, yeah, and and obviously the the Hallow's Eve much much stronger associations with with death than than Christmas, which is perhaps more associated with birth, the birth of of Christ. And so, yeah, it definitely puts a different spin on the title. But we'll maybe get to talk about that a little bit later. So then, the way the way the story is told is we 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 get the perspective of Maria. So it's it's told in the third person, but again, Joyce is employing this device of the free and direct discourse, where the perspective of the narrative kind of takes on the sympathies or the the emotions of the character it's it's describing. So um, in this case, we we have a quite a simple um, descriptions of things that the narrative never really gets too complicated in how things are described, kind of reflecting. Maria herself, who is uh, this relatively poor character who hasn't had a lot of opportunities in life and maybe isn't particularly well educated. Across this, we get um, a few different times Joyce describes Maria physically. Um, overall, she's a very, very short woman and with quite a long protruding nose and chin. And when she laughs, though, those two nearly touch. And if you can imagine a an image of a, a traditional witch in, in silhouette or you, you, you can see that, that kind of long bent nose and, 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 and long pointed chin almost almost meeting. So there's immediately um associations between the kind of classical idea of a, a witch and, and Maria that's that's reinforced later with the description of her her long black cloak like coat and uh, her small black boots as well. One really specific thing, and, and and Joyce, you know, dives into the description of people's eyes quite often. He describes, in this case, he describes her eyes as 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 being grey green in colour, which uh, links her back to the Josser from an encounter, the second story in the collection. Uh, if you recall that individual, uh, slightly slightly different nature to uh, to Maria, and um, 
Polly from the boarding house as well is described as having these grey green eyes. So there's an association between, I suppose, all these characters across um across the narrative and across the the collection of of, of Dubliners. John, I don't know if you have uh, more to to comment on 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 her physical appearance. Yeah, well, uh, yeah. If I read out that um that section you you talk about, it's Maria was a very very small person indeed, but she had a very long nose and a very long chin, and I think. It, uh, first of all, even in this kind of description, we see very simple adjectives and this repeating of the word very, like this very, very small. It seems like quite a childish narrative. And I think, again, this is this, this free indirect discourse. But I, I think the other thing about her physical description is that we, we, we often hear about how, how small she is. Um, later, there's some other adjectives used like diminutive and, and um, a tiny and so on. And so every every time we're given a description of Maria, it's often with these these adjectives that emphasize her her smallness. Uh, and so I, I think uh, then we this physical description of Maria as being physically small kind of also then describes a little bit of how she socially interacts and that she's kind of someone who is not taking up a lot of space socially, that she is fitting herself in around to, to the people around yeah, her. Yeah, so I mean, I think the, the key social description of her is probably that she's she's described as being a peacemaker and there's there's definitely i think coupled with the name maria the fact that she works in a magdalene laundry you know this this catholic christian imagery is 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 steeped around her and and the you know the description of her as a peacemaker really um i think links back to the narrative of jesus and um, the line blessed are the peacemakers they are the uh, the children of god so there there's certainly a link there between Maria as a Catholic character and, 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 and very much a religiously observant uh, figure. Similarly, I think as, as, as she's getting ready to go out for the evening, she, she remembers that it's, uh, because it's Halloween, there's a, it's All Saints Day tomorrow and that makes it a holy day and therefore the, the mass will be early in the morning. So she has to set her alarm clock an hour earlier than uh, she would normally have set. I think really very, very early on in the story, we're, we're, we're getting this image or this narrative presentation of Maria as a religious observant. And as, as you say, John, kind of very small, diminutive, non-imposing, non-threatening character. Yeah, I think the, the other thing you kind of alluded to there in terms of her religious observance is there's a, and the, say the setting of the alarm clock is there's a kind of a meticulousness or an attentiveness to Maria that she's, she pays attention to do her job well and so on um and even this this yeah the setting of the alarm earlier uh it's uh it's just she works in a, in a protestant laundry but marie herself is is a catholic so so she's having to make her religious observances outside of her work hours and she needs to get up earlier in order to to uh to attend mass rather than the time she'd normally get up to go to work yeah um in, in, in interestingly on, on on that point actually uh one one little line and, and i think it might be correct me if i'm wrong john might be one of the only times that she expresses kind of unhappiness or or, or dis dislike for something is um when she's working in the, so one of the things she does in the laundry is work at the conservatory where she tends to the plants and Overall, she she likes it, but notes that uh, one thing she didn't like was that the tracts on the wall. And um, this is a Protestant practice of taking excerpts and, and snippets of the Bible and, and and Bible verses and attaching them to the wall so that they're, I suppose, a constant presence in your life and and, and something that you're exposed to on a regular basis. And I think this uh, 
jars significantly with the, the Catholic expectation and treatment of the Bible itself as, as, as a document and the idea of extracting Bible verses directly from the Bible itself is not uh, not really a Catholic practice. Yeah, yeah, the, uh, the the Catholic and the Protestant approach to the to the practice of religion uh, likely likely differed in that regard. So the early pages are all kind of devoted to describing Maria, but we get her described in a lot of cases by other people. And so the narrative, even though I've said we've kind of have this free and direct discourse that uh, you know we're we're adopting Maria's perspective here, a lot of the time the description is a statement that someone else has made. So it's a quote by by someone else. Uh, and for example, we have one day the matron had said to her, Maria, you are a veritable peacemaker. And then later we have Ginger Mooney was always saying what she wouldn't do to the dummy who had charge of the irons if it wasn't for Maria. Everyone was so fond of Maria. So again, there's, uh, we have Maria and Maria is being described, but the descriptions of Maria are, seem to be always coming from external parties, quotes from what other people have said about Maria. Again, giving into this idea that Maria herself is this kind of small, non-imposing person who's not really asserting her own perspective at all, but also maybe suggesting that she is looking for external approval and how she uh, goes about her life. Because even if, if we have this narrative from her perspective, she's constantly reinforcing what she wants to say by saying, well, another person said this, you know, so it, so it must be true. And so it, it kind of gives this impression of a very... Um, unsure sort of a person i would say yeah no definitely this ties into the presentation of maria as a paralyzed figure or as a as a you know and, and arguably her role as a cipher for ireland in the dichotomy of the the irish english dichotomy that, that joyce constantly uh, refers back to and is, is is in constant i suppose dialogue with throughout throughout Dubliners as a whole i think um her unimposing nature, her small nature, really kind of mirrors Ireland's inability to express its own will at this at this time, and, and Joyce's perception of Ireland's unwillingness or inability to express its own will geopolitically on the on, on the continent and, and and with regard to England at the time. If we look at then the next steps, I suppose so. Maria, as as we said, another emphasizing point of your description of Maria as being very meticulous and being very particular about what she's doing. She has her money set out and, and she knows exactly the cost of all the trams that she's going to be taking and has is able to kind of mentally budget for how much everything is going to cost and how much money then she has to spend on these these cakes for the the family for the children yeah yeah absolutely so she's she's getting ready to go the ladies in the laundry who are running the laundry have said she can go uh, after the the evening meal is served and so actually at this point, maybe we should talk about the laundry a little bit. So it's, it's this institution, as you, as you kind of pointed out already, Lachlan, it's a Protestant institution for the kind of reform of women and also putting them into, into work in, in, in uh, laundering clothes. Um, so it's, it's interesting that, um, first of all, specifically that it's a, a Protestant institution, but secondly, that there's this kind of conflict between Maria's prim and properness and her kind of sense of devotion and uh, genteel almost behavior versus the kind of the woman who the women who are in this laundry uh, and we see that then in this in the serving of tea where uh, uh, while they're serving the tea there's a, a barn brack one of these Halloween traditions we mentioned in the in the intro and one of the women who's getting served her tea makes a joke that Maria is going to get the ring uh, 
Maria uh, is not, not taken aback exactly, but she's kind of bashful when this comment is made. And, and then we, we hear her response. Maria laughed again till the tip of her nose nearly met the tip of her chin, and her minute body nearly shook itself asunder because she knew that Mooney meant well, though of course she had the notions of a common woman. Yeah, again, it's it's this conflict between Maria's kind of seeing of how how one should carry on, and it's it's this aversion to um, to this notion of marriage or to this even this vague su- suggestion of of um, relationships between men and women seems to be something that uh, already uh, makes Maria a little bit recoil or a little bit uh, drawback. Yeah, there's there's certainly a um, propriety or properness to Maria that I think. Uh extends beyond normality or beyond the, the normal bounds and i do wonder is that a facet of her personality or of her stage in life where she's without ever being explicit about it if it, it, it's, it's heavily implied that Marie is a spinster and you know effectively has never married her family are she's beyond marrying age at this stage and is now going to, to kind of live out the rest of her life as an unwed woman and um, servicing effectively fallen women or as, as they would have been considered at the time these fallen women to um i suppose for non-irish listeners this the idea of a magdalene laundry may be may be a little bit jarring but uh, essentially these were homes that women who were unwed mothers were forced into i think it's probably the only word for it and, and, and you know I think that there's been a huge social and societal reckoning in, in ireland with regard to the treatment of these women in these magdalene laundries the a lot of the children that they gave birth to were forcibly adopted out to foreign countries. And I suppose in the last few years, there's been a massive uh, reckoning and reconciliation and, and, and an attempt to resolve the, the issues that stem from this. Um, curiously, a lot of those are, are actually Catholic laundries. There are very few or relatively few uh, Protestant laundries in, in Dublin relative to the number of uh, Catholic ones. Yeah, at least I, I'm not sure if that's historically true as well, but definitely in, in terms of the um, reckoning that's that's been happening uh, in the last decades, decade particularly, it's it's been relatively late for for when it's been addressed. But um, yeah, definitely the Catholic laundries were the ones that were were being addressed. Yeah, for me, it's it's also interesting that obviously there's a, the prim and properness maybe comes with the religious teaching, but there also seems to be like a kind of a a veneration of the more upper class people. We'll see this later when she talks to the colonel, but there's also a description of the matron of the laundry, and it's that the matron was such a nice person to deal with, so genteel. And there doesn't seem to be any trace of, of irony there, and when, when Maria uses the, the term genteel, it seems to be like something that she's very much endorsing. For me, it's, it seems like Maria is, is living within this ideology of classes and who's common and how you should behave, and that that maybe is also a reason for her paralysis. It's an ideology that is one that says she should know her place. She she is on a lower rung and that as a person with that position in society, she's one who should rather listen to rather than speak. And so I've, her adopting of this ideology or her, her internalizing of it also leads to her, her own paralysis, her own lack of, uh, lack of a voice. Yeah, certainly. And I mean, I think that's something that Joyce has... And that's something we've talked about before in, in this podcast is the idea that Joyce a little bit points the finger at the Irish and blames them for their own misery and unhappiness rather than necessarily kind of pointing it to the to the external factors. Absolutely, it's not facilitated or helped at all by the uh, the external characters but, uh, or the external factors going on at the time. But, but certainly, I think Joyce 
considers Ireland to be an author of its own misery, at least complicit in its own uh, subjugation in some ways. Yeah, you definitely see that in some of the other characters. Maria, for me, it's hard to say um, in this case. She, she's portrayed as, as so innocent that it's, I, I, I don't know, I almost see her as of, of never having the opportunity to uh, not be a complacent. That this is almost a survival strategy. Um, but we, I guess the thing is, we don't know a huge amount of Maria's backstory. What we do learn is that she used to be a, a nurse for, for these two brothers, Joe and Alfie. What we learn of her backstory is uh, that she acted quite motherly to these characters. And in fact, Joe is, is quoted as saying, again, here we see that uh, Maria in, is, is relying on, on, on other people's quotes to describe herself, or the narrative is relying on other people's quotes to describe Maria. Um, and, but yeah, the quote that Joe uses when... Um, in the text is mama is mama but maria is my proper mother so again it's it's that maria has uh these motherly qualities but also she's kind of serving others and that she's 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 dedicating her life to to other people that's definitely something that comes up across the narrative and and, and, and certainly we see that a, a few times maria putting herself out to either make other people feel more comfortable or to facilitate something that they want or to give them something that they are desirous of um, I think we can probably move on there to, and that probably is a nice segue into the uh, cake shop scenes. And I think, again, um, if, I, if I can briefly describe this, essentially, she goes into a number of different cake shops to um, to buy cakes for the the family of Joe, his, his, his wife, the Donnellys. Um, she goes into the first cake shop and is kind of eyeing up the cakes and, and, and seriously considering, I suppose, what she which one she wants and, and, and decides on a plum cake, but is unhappy in the first shop, is unhappy with the uh, level of almond icing. So again, we're, we're, we're getting that sense of particularness or a slight fussiness, I guess, around exact the exactitude and uh, of the, the nature. And I think, you know, I, I would certainly say if, if, if this was a modern text or if you're reading this with a, a modern lens, you, you'd argue that Maria comes across as slightly OCD, I think, in, in, in some of her behaviours and some of the patterns. Uh, it's interesting that in the opening paragraph as well, the cakes she's cut are described as being cut in, 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 into completely equal, uh, even long, thick, even slices. And so there's there's this constant repetition or this idea of Maria doing things in perfect sequence and in perfect balance. In the second cake shop that Maria goes to, where she's been examining the, the cakes for a number of different, uh, for a number of minutes, she has an interaction with the, the shop girl there. And, and again, I think this uh, probably starts to draw a distinction between where how you perceive Maria and how I perceive Maria, possibly, John. Um, so I think the, the girl in the cake shop is getting frustrated and eventually she says, are, are you looking for a wedding cake? Kind of suggesting, you know, you're a woman of a certain age. I know this isn't a wedding cake, but you're you're spending so much time kind of considering these things and and and, and taking so much into account. It's hard to uh, you know it's it, it's getting frustrating. And I suppose from from my perspective, and and I, I'll I'll go first, John. I suppose I I read this as um, Maria, you know, through this free indirect discourse, through the absence of Maria describing herself or or imposing her own opinions or feelings on things, we struggle to understand how Marie is actually perceived in the, in the, in the real world. And I think this frustration that the girl is experiencing and the kind of curt response she gives, you know, kind of handing over the bag and, and, and thank you very much is all, um, 
indicative of Maria is maybe not quite as innocent or simplistic as she maybe portrays herself and that there's a bit of a depth to her character. She uses a lot of uh, euphemisms later in the text as well. We can, we can pick up on those as well. But I, I, I question whether she's a fully sympathetic character so much as maybe a slightly sly character and, and is, is leveraging her diminutive nature to enforce her will in a maybe not intentionally obnoxious way, but I, I think she can come across as, as slightly obnoxious and, and slightly inconveniencing with other people. Um, it's That's an interesting point. I mean, I think if you kind of, again, putting a more modern lens on it, uh, if you kind of look at it in a, in a maybe from a psychological perspective, is maybe this is a kind of learned behavior from Maria, how she learns that by uh, making herself small and by by uh, being so agreeable all the time, almost forcibly agreeable, she learns to get her way. But yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, I I didn't see that that level of sophistication and slyness in her behavior. And I I think her reaction to the to the to the woman is she she kind of blushes and she kind of doesn't know how to deal with it. She doesn't have a, a comeback. But again, maybe that's that's just a, a further development of her her strategy of, of smallness or of of, of a not uh, speaking out in, in public but I, I think for me the thing is she appears quite a sad character so even if she is a, in some ways more sophisticated than she lets on it, it doesn't seem to have amounted to much in, in her life and um, another point suggesting that she, she does have some sort of selflessness about her is uh, that she refuses to go live with, with Joe and his family although they've offered to, to, to home her if she, if she wanted instead she lives in the laundry yeah no it's interesting because again and, and, and I think you're right I, I, have, I have a slightly different interpretation of that I suppose I I read that not so much as Joe making a selfless offer so much as you know the, the Joe we know, we know Joe has children and we know that Maria is one of the one of the few insights we get into Maria's own perspective on the world is that she's concerned about Joe's drinking and she's unhappy that Joe is uh, has fallen out with his brother. There's a there's a question in my mind as to whether she's again using the laundry as an excuse to avoid having to take on effectively an unpaid role of becoming the nurse to Joe's second generation of family. So she 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 nursed she acted as kind of the nursemaid to to Joe and, and, and his brother Alfie, and now potentially she has to take on that role again with with, with Joe's children, and that's um, something she doesn't want to get involved with. And so kind of coyly, the, oh no, I've got my life in the laundry now. I've got this satisfaction, but really I just don't want to have to admit that I I, I don't like working as a maid, and and I imagine there's a an undercurrent or an implication despite her protestations that uh, she does want a family on some level or other and I think that's maybe part of the politeness or the unspoken element of um, the narrative because you know throughout this you have characters either drawing attention to her spinsterhood or her lack of marriage and her kind of responding by blushing and being quite coy about it, but I, I I do wonder if she's conditioning the people around her to to not even bring this up, and I think that that comes up again in the with regard to her decision not to purchase Barbara for the family. She she decides to get a plum cake, so expressly avoiding the traditional Barbara cake that would have been the I suppose the go to dish or the go to kind of cake if you were bringing cake to someone on Halloween, you'd traditionally bring a Barbara. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I think we'll we'll maybe discuss this point of of uh, Maria's innocence or sophistication later, because there's a couple of sentences later that um, 
kind of explicitly state uh, her not understanding something, but I don't want to get too far ahead of where we are for now. Um, one last one last point in terms of the cakes and so on is just financially, it seems like quite an extravagance. She brings two half crowns with her, which is uh, the equivalent of five shillings, and then she has some coppers as well. For someone of Maria's means, that would be a significant amount of money. If we compare it, say, to um, the meal in two galants, that only costs three half pence. Twelve pence would be a shilling, and so Maria is spending uh, multiple shillings. So the, the plum cake costs two and four, two shillings and four pence. Yeah, so it's quite an extravagant purchase for her, which uh, make, makes the uh, the loss of it later uh, all the more significant. But uh, maybe we should talk then about her, her time on the tram before we get to her loss of the cake. Certainly. There's um, a couple of interesting events, I think, happen on the tram. So first of all, she, she gets on the tram and um, she's heading out. So this is the, the final tram journey or the final tram journey outward towards Drumcondra and to, uh, to Joe's house. So... When she first gets on the tram, she doesn't have anywhere to sit down, so she's stuck standing, um, and she's she gives out about the young gentlemen on the on the tram who are all effectively ignoring her. So a little bit again, and 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 again, it, it's kind of this implication that she at least herself perceives herself to be old enough to be offered a seat. Now, I suppose the politics around offering people seats is a, a highly charged. Uh, one in Ireland, I, I have a particular recollection of talking to a to a Cork woman I met in college who said that she hated Dublin and, and, and the one thing she really disliked about Dublin was that when she the first time she got on the Lewis, she just noticed nobody would offer uh, elderly women seats or elderly people seats and it was this um dichotomy between kind of the, the traditional kind of city centre idea of Dublin as a, a bustling suburb where everybody lives in massively close proximity to one another but nobody knows who anybody else is and nobody really goes out of the way to help other people versus kind of more rural Ireland where by default everybody is, is much more gregarious and much more giving of their, their, their personality and their time. So just an interesting side note that that, that was an issue a hundred years ago for, for Joyce on the old trams as well as the, the modern day trams. In, you know, as, as, as she's giving out effectively about the, 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 the lack of a seat, she, uh, she interacts with a gentleman, a, a stout gentleman, as she describes him, wearing a, a brown hard hat. And as we've mentioned a few times in these narratives, um, the, the color brown is indicative of that kind of decay or that rot in Dublin. And, and Joyce is, is, is kind of very fond of this, uh, this, this color to indicate something that's negative or, or less, uh, less than positive. Uh, John, I don't know if you want to, provide more of a description of the gentleman or, or the interaction there. Yeah, I can maybe read the uh, the description of him itself. Uh, so, yeah, as you mentioned, he was a stout gentleman and he wore a brown hard hat. He had a square red face and a greyish moustache. Maria thought he was a, a colonel-looking gentleman and she reflected how much more polite he was than the young men who simply stared straight before them. Again, there's uh, we see here Maria's sense of, of proprietary. She kind of associates his, his politeness to his class. He looks like a more sophisticated person. And so therefore, she immediately draws that, that link there that the reason he's given her is because he's a, he's a gentleman and the others are, are not. They talk. He seems to do most of the talking. And uh, she, she seems quite flustered at the end of this. She's, she's quite taken by this conversation. And as a result, she, she forgets to bring one of the cakes with her, the plum cake, uh, as she leaves the tram. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's an interesting um, alternative reading to this situation, which is, it, it, I, might, I might offer us here. So terminates the uh, the interaction, or final description of the interaction is, um, she thought how easy it was to know a gentleman. 
even when he has a drop taken. So there's this um, implication that the the gentleman is, is is a little bit drunk, and again, I think that's reinforced by uh, the description of his face as uh, being a square red face and a greyish moustache. So you you can imagine that kind of flushed face and the the, the kind of red reddishness from um, the drinking, and as well even the the opening description of him as a stout gentleman is is definitely a a clever play on words, the idea of stout or porter being um, kind of a heavy Guinness-like drink. So there's a strong implication or underlying current here that, that, that the man is, is drunk. And um, in my reading of the story and, and you know, my, my interpretation of this has always been that uh, contrary to Maria's assertions that she forgot the cake or she got flustered in the situation, I, I, I think it's heavily implied the man stole the cake from her. In the description, he draws it attention. He, su- he supposed the bag was full of good things for the little ones and said it was only right that the youngsters should enjoy themselves when they were young. He's the one drawing attention to the bag. He's kind of highlighting its, its, its value and I think that coupled with the, the drunkenness Maria's trusting of him, I think there's an implication there suggesting possibly that he has liberated her of the cake. Yeah, I, I didn't get that reading because so she gets up to leave the tram before him and she has two bags so I think perhaps he's he's sequestered the second bag away from her, but I think there there definitely needs to be an element of forgetfulness there for her to get up and leave the tram with only one bag instead of two. Um, but yeah, maybe he has uh, facilitated that forgetfulness by uh, by hiding the bag away from her or something. For me, the other thing that I take about it is that this, again, as, as we've mentioned up to this point, any suggestion of marriage or relationship with males that comes to Maria, she blushes, she's unable to deal with it. And in this conversation, she actually kind of lets herself go a bit and lets herself enjoy it. Like she's reflecting how much she enjoys associating with him and this reflection of comparing how easy it is to, to get along with a gentleman, even if he's had a drop taken. With most men, she's unable to converse to actually have uh, any sort of relationship with them. And so this is this is a rare thing for, for Maria to have this kind of a conversation. And then the fact that this leads to a, a, a loss, like a that it leads to a kind of a failure on her part that she now no longer has this cake to bring to the family. I think it's uh, it's interesting because, yeah, it's, it's this idea that the, the her closeness to a man has, has somehow damaged her in some way. And, 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 you know, we might reflect on the fallen women in the laundry or we might just say that this is, again, Maria's inability to deal with these sort of conversations has, has put her in this kind of position where she immediately loses her head when she is... Uh, is, is having a sort of a pleasant conversation with a man. It's interesting, and I mean, it, 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 from my perspective, at least, I'd say it's nearly impossible to tell or to, to, to make a definitive call as to, as to which reading is correct. Like, uh, while, I, while I favor my own reading, it, it, it's, it's by no stretch the imagination uh, rock solid, and the, the, there's no kind of strong evidence, I suppose, supporting it beyond uh, implications and assertions. I suppose the nature of uh, Dubliners as a whole really is, is reading in between the lines. Following this this incident on the tram and, and the interaction with the gentleman, she she finally arrives at Joe's house, and and, and that's where the I suppose the final events of the evening take place. It kicks off very quickly into this search for the cake, and 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 kind of you know Maria sets up this grand reveal of oh I've got something special for Papa, and then suddenly realizes she can't find the cake and is is, is looking around the house and. She asked all the children if anybody had eaten it by mistake, of course. And there's this, there is an, a, a cute little interaction there where she, she is kind of qualifying and, and, and trying to help the children understand that it's okay. And, and, you know, I think that this, this, this ties back to her role as a, a maid for Joe and Alfie earlier in, uh, in their lives. And 
I don't know if that's meant to be a, this, this this kind of tragic moment of oh she would have made a good mother but she has failed in this endeavor or or, or what the the real implication is behind that line. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and in the end, the whole thing is kind of smoothed over. Um, again, kind of showing that this is a is a huge deal for Maria and her her fussiness. She feels really strongly about the loss. Of course, it's a big financial loss in terms of what she spent her money on. To the family, ultimately, it, it doesn't really matter all that much. Uh, they're able to just just continue on as if nothing happened. We've talked a lot about the cake, so maybe then we can talk about how how the evening progresses. So there's a lot of interactions then between Joe and Maria. We start off with with Joe telling a story of um, uh, a remark he made to his boss that that a little bit echoes uh, Farrington in, in Counterparts. He makes some retort to his boss. I don't know if you you thoughts on that, Lachlan or yeah. I mean, I think both of us. I think as we read it, 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 it sticks out in particular. I think because this story play is coming on immediately on the heels of um, Counterparts, it's it's hard to ignore the parallels between. The two events now interestingly they, they they diverge in their outcomes in that joe seems to have a relatively positive attitude towards his boss and he kind of says oh you know he's no he's an okay guy overall it's just this uh bit of a problem but i i do wonder is there um at this stage maria's kind of noted or has has, has alluded to joe's drinking and is a little bit concerned about that and his relationship with his brother alfie and these things are all kind of falling apart so I do wonder is Joyce to my mind is, is is Joyce trying to tee up Joe as either a Farrington lies or on the trajectory of Farrington and, and something goes wrong, you can become a, a Farrington character yourself or what exactly is is, is happening here. Similar, um you you also get um Bob Doran vibes from uh, from Joe's character as well, I would say, kind of echoing um, the boarding house. Yeah, the the other aspect of that that uh, description there, and in, in terms of uh, so Joe tells the story of the retort, and um, we get we get then the, again this kind of description of of Maria's ignorance, saying Maria did not understand why Joe laughed so much over the answer he had made. I read that passage again as kind of reinforcing this idea of Maria being a more innocent character and and not being that uh, sophisticated or uh, intentional or uh, manipulative. The other, the other interaction we see with, with, with Joe and uh, Maria is they take out some nuts, again, a t- traditional thing you'd eat at Halloween, but they don't have a nutcracker. And Joe, at this pa- stage, perhaps having drank a little bit, gets angry at the kids. He seems to genuinely care about Maria and be a more <clears throat> caring sort than, uh, than Farrington is. But again, alcohol is leading to these, these outbursts of emotion. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, in- interestingly, again, I would have um, read that slightly differently and, and, and taken it that Joe is using maria as a as an excuse to get kind of angry and is, is really you know like why get how could maria be expected to eat the nuts and it's like well they're all gonna eat the nuts and you're not actually frustrated at the absence of you're not frustrated because you're concerned that maria is not going to be able to eat the nuts you're frustrated because you want something and you can't get it instantly and there's a a childishness to um to it and, and, and a degree of kind of, I suppose, using Maria as an excuse or a stick to beat the uh, metaphoric stick to beat the children a little bit. But um, no, I think that that's it. I mean, and, and again, I suppose it's, it's just reinforcing this idea of, of Joe's drinking is a constant presence, but in the background. And I partly, I think, again, the, the use of the screen direct discourse prevents Maria from maybe fully interrogating Joe's drinking or being as harsh or as, as critical of him as she maybe should be or, or could be. 
Maybe so. Yeah, yeah. There's another another hint of a, of a potential outbreak when when Maria brings up uh, Joe's brother Alfie and sh- and she suggests that uh you know she wants him to recollect ba- basically and she she wants to put in a good word for Alfie, but uh, Joe he responds quite stridently. In fact, he says uh, Joe cried that God might strike him stone dead if ever he spoke a word to his brother again. So Joe has uh, not not reacted well to the mention of his brother again. Perhaps. Uh, suggestion that uh, at this point Joe is getting a little bit drunker and uh, you know in, in the previous stories we've kind of seen these these trajectories of characters in counterparts and also in uh, a little cloud um, of these characters who gradually lose the run of themselves as they're drinking but um, thankfully there's there's no major outburst here um, other than the, the short verbal remark. No, you're, you're right there and in, in, interestingly that scene ends with Joe asking his wife to bring more stout and to, uh, to, to drink more so there's an implication that the alcohol is being used to temper to manage his uh, his mood a little bit as well so so then we move on to the games and i wonder i wonder if you want to talk a little bit about the the implications of of maria's choices and and how how should we read those yeah so the the games are set up by there's there's two neighbor children have um are, are, are with the the donnelly family and they they put out plates to play this uh, premonition game that we, we we talked about in the opening there so the player is, is, is blindfolded and presented with a, a series of plates with different materials on, on top of them, each of them indicating a, a different path that they're, they're going to embark on in, in the following year. So initially, Maria reaches out and she touches onto um, something cold and wet, and nothing happens. People, Nobody takes the blindfold off her, she, uh, she doesn't move it, nobody says anything, and there's this lengthy pause. There was a pause for a few seconds, and then a great deal of scuffling and whispering. Somebody said something about the garden, and at last Mrs. Donnelly said something very cross to one of the next-door goals and told her to throw it out at once. That was no play. Maria understood that it was wrong that time, and so she had to do it over again. And this time she got the prayer book. So what's happened here is, and this this is the, the titular clay has, has finally appeared in the story. Effectively, Maria's reached out and, and touched the clay, which Im- implies that you're going to die in the next year. And everybody in the room has seen what's happened and has realized, and nobody wants to acknowledge this or to, to put Maria out or to embarrass her, I suppose, ultimately by suggesting that she's going to die in the next year because the nature of the game is that it's, it's slightly funny and that it's, it's generally children playing this and therefore they're not at risk of dying. But I think Maria is probably the eldest character in the room and therefore the suggestion that she could die in the next year is a little bit more real interesting little just side note there as well that the the use of the expression that was no play is uh, I think maybe um, meant to sound a little bit like there's no clay and, and, and there's a I suppose an implication there a, a play on words and potentially Maria is intentionally misrepresenting what she's heard in order to get around the game and as Maria herself says or as, as the narrative describes her you know she, she knew that the game was wrong that time I suppose ultimately what's happening here is you, you've kind of got this polite society kind of refusing to acknowledge what's what's going on with Maria and in some ways infantilizing her and preventing her from getting the full enjoyment of the game, the full recognition of the game, because the I suppose the, the play element, the failure state is getting the clay, but they've, they've rigged the game to prevent Maria from, from ultimately losing it, if we can describe it that way. Yeah, it's interesting that it's Maria understood that it was wrong that time. It's not 
where he understood that the clay was there and she got the clay and then they're taking out the clay it's just oh something was wrong with the game you're, you're gonna have to do it over and and yeah as you said it's this kind of infantilizing thing that you know the reasoning or, or or what what has actually happened is i don't want to say concealed from her because i mean as as unsophisticated as a character as i may have maybe have portrayed her to be i think she can still probably realize if you put your hand in some clay and you're aware of these traditions in any in any sense at all you, you'd know what's happened but uh, it's still yeah as you said not acknowledged because it's uh it's impolite i think it's uh it's interesting then the the other thing is when when maria does redo the game the, the next time she she gets the prayer book suggesting she'll go in, into the convent and again um both these both the clay itself which is a suggestion of death uh but also then the, the prayer book it's uh, it's, it's kind of points to a very sterile sort of uh, life for Maria that again there's not going to be any sort of romantic involvement uh, it seems unlikely at this stage that Maria will actually go to the convent but uh, the fact that this is the, the, the premonition that's, that's given for her yeah, again just reinforces this idea of her as a, a, a woman without, without much uh, romantic interactions yeah absolutely I think um, this is probably interesting this is probably the first female character we've uh, encountered who's truly i suppose asexual in a sense and, and and you know i think probably something we we didn't talk about already but probably could is the the transition i think this probably really marks the transition into middle age and at least to, to, to female middle age and, and, and bordering on the kind of older more established post uh post children age for uh for characters and dubliners and you know i think from from this point on we're, we're going to see a few different kind of childless characters although we we do then cycle back to characters with with adult children as well. To bring to bring this story to a close, we have we have one or two more kind of key critical scenes. So the Bohemian girl makes a makes a reappearance once again. So definitely one of Joyce's preferred uh, preferred items, and effectively to try and terminate the game and and, and to, to move proceedings on. The Mrs. Donnelly starts playing music, and then they ask Maria to start singing. And they ask her to sing that song that she sings. So she sings, I, I, I dreamt that I dwelt a song for the Bohemian girl. But critically, Angelus goes so far as to point out that when she came to sing the second verse, she sang again and lists out the, the, the first verse of the, of the song. But no one tried to show her, her mistake. So you've got a few different things happening here. You, first of all, you've got Maria skipping the second verse and repeating the first verse of the song. There's a, and no one wanting to draw attention to or acknowledge the fact that this has happened. So, again, this kind of becomes an interesting question mark over are people infantilizing or kind of not challenging Maria on her decisions because she's incapable of understanding the mistake that she's made or because she's effectively forcing her will on other people through hyper-politeness and relying on the nuances of polite discourse and polite culture to prevent people from challenging her on things that she doesn't want to, to deal with or address. And critically, I suppose, the, the, the second verse of this song, I, I, I Dreamt That I Dwelt, is, is much more focused on, on marriage and in, in engagement in romantic relations, whereas the first verse is, is, is linked more to material wealth and the, the success in, in, in living in castles and things like that. But, uh, John, eager, eager to get your thoughts on this one as well. This is a, this is a critical moment in in the narrative, I would say. Yeah, no, I'm I'm, I'm starting to come around a little bit. Your your uh, idea of of Maria as maybe uh, deliberately maybe playing up her her innocence or something to uh, in order to avoid certain difficult topics. Um, 
you've rightly pointed out that the the second verse deals with great romantic um love uh i don't i don't really have too much more to say and i realize we're running on a bit so so maybe we can uh we can jump straight then to the to the reaction so we see then as a result joe starts crying so he uh yeah he hears the song and there's tears well up in his eyes and he also um laments uh, for the for the composer of the song balf who is uh at this point in in history has kind of fallen out of favor i once had a relatively high standing but after his death has kind of declined in popularity and so this leads to joe yeah, welling up and I, I wonder again for me i saw this as joe's caring for maria he i think sees Maria is a tragic figure, and that's part of the reason he's crying, not just the, the emotional impact of the song, but uh, I'm curious as to how you read it. Yeah, no, I think um, Joe's crying is, is definitely, in my mind at least, is, is, is absolutely a response to his perception of Maria. Um, and again, I think it's interesting, this idea of the free and direct discourse, and I think there's an implication, or Maria at least is implying here, that he's crying for the old times and his old relationship with Alfie and, you know, in some ways, I suppose, lamenting the, the breakdown of their relationship. But arguably, I suspect Joe might actually be crying at his recognition of Maria and her position in life and the, the fact that she can't even bring herself to sing the second verse of this song and the idea that uh, marriage is something that's just completely outside of her realm of perception anymore and that she doesn't even you know she she eschews all discussions of sexual relationships and even romantic relationships at this stage in her life and that that is uh that is something that's, that's terminated for her and is, is over and is, is 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 that what he's crying about and maybe very a- extreme reading of it but um the final line is is joe asking his wife to tell him where the corkscrew is sometimes a cigar is just a cigar and sometimes a corkscrew is just a corkscrew but uh I think that there's certainly something in the idea of a husband asking his wife with tears in his eyes to, to tell him where the corkscrew is can certainly take on a, a sexual dimension. And is Joyce trying to, to signpost for us there the, the nature of Maria's life a little bit? But um, that's 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 the end of the story there. What what is the denouement here? As we dive further and further into the Dubliners as a whole, I, th- I think the denouement moments are becoming more and more difficult to discern explicitly. They're they're less explicit and more conceptual, I would say. But curious on your thoughts, John. Yeah, I don't know if this story has like the the big reveal at the end in the same sense. Again, I see Marie as this kind of tragic figure. So the whole story kind of progresses along this line of um, just kind of revealing, gradually revealing the this kind of sadness or the smallness of her life. In some ways, you're you're expecting that that big happening. You think the 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 missing the cake is going to be this this big deal or something and there's going to be a big reveal there but in the end it turns out to be not really that much of an issue and the stakes are low in some senses and that there's no big life or death sort of things happening but there's just this this feeling of sadness throughout it yeah in the end there's not a big uh oh you know this terrible thing has happened the the new moment is perhaps that nothing happens and then that just her life is just going to continue along in that kind of sad path. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do wonder is, um, is Joyce having a, a little bit of a play with us in, in the denouement moment is almost kind of pre-revealed to us with the title of the story being Clay. Maria gets the clay and is, is, is that what the denouement is meant to be? Is that Maria is going to die in the next year and, and everybody knows that and Maria is, you know, part of her I suppose self ignorance or, or lack of introspection 
which I think is is reinforced by the narrative structure and the the way it's presented throughout, is then reflecting back on 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 this event, and and that's why people think it's impolite to draw attention to the clay because Maria herself hasn't accepted or acknowledged that she's going to die, and everyone else is aware of that, and and potentially that's why Joe is crying at the end as well, is that this is the last time he'll ever um, spend time with Maria. It's, it's, it's again, I appreciate that's a, that's an extreme reading there, but um, I I mean I think I would broadly agree with that point in that the clay is is symbolizing that, and as I've said, we've seen this kind of Maria that there's no big reveal. We've just kind of seen her life like kind of plodding along or something. I, I think where I would maybe disagree is like seeing it as being that the characters all realize it's all she's going to die in the next year. But I do think the the clay and the idea of that does reinforce this idea that her time is slowly wasting away. And I think that's part of Joe's tears at the end as well. Yeah. I mean, I think it's it's interesting. We talk about decay probably not as much as we should in, in, in the context of Dubliners. I think Joyce definitely wants to present or wants us to consider Dublin at this stage to be a, a decaying city and I do wonder is, is that what this narrative is all about is effectively nearly a hollowed out uh, individual whose life is who they themselves aren't even aware are, are, are living in a decaying world or living in a, deca- living a decaying life and is that what's going on or is it more um, paralysis uh, if I can I definitely think Nomen uh, of the three paralysis simony and Nomen if you don't remember that try again. I think we can see the gnome here uh, in the absence of that second paragraph of the song, or that second verse of the song is, is, is a really quintessential gnome. You know, the, the absence of this highlights its significance and its meaning and, and brings a new cultural and social meaning interrogation to the to the piece, despite the fact that it itself is uh, is not present. Yeah, you, you love your gnomes. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's actually a good example uh, of of uh, yeah, as you say, an absence highlighting uh, something larger, some larger absence or some larger thing of significance. I, I I think that's it in terms of the denouement or the end of the story. Uh, I I think there's maybe one kind of key lens to maybe apply to the story that we haven't looked at yet, and it's the idea of Maria being like a, a Mary like figure, so uh, like the the mother of Christ. Um, uh, obviously the name Maria is the, the same name and also there's a there's a kind of a parallel there in terms of Mary conceived Jesus immaculately in the Bible that she you know she she had a baby without having uh, sexual relations with a man and so um, yeah there's a there's a similarly a parallel there in terms of Maria and her lack of of uh, engagement with men and um, yeah I, I'm not sure quite how to read it I wondered if you had any thoughts on that broadly or um, yeah, no, I mean, I think the religious symbolism, to, to my mind, I think Joyce is, is toying with us as, as readers and is, is, is taking a shot at the Catholic Church here a little bit. Um, we talked about a lot at the beginning how modern Halloween traditions and, and customs are born out of kind of this Celtic mythology. And the designation of All Saints Day is the 1st of November was explicitly tied to the Salem Festival at the end of October. And the pegging of the Catholic calendar and the significant Catholic events to or the significant Christian events to pre-existing pagan festivals and pagan religious ceremonies and things like that. So I do wonder is 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 Joyce trying to present Maria as a 
Catholic pasting over of a pre-existing culture and society and a and, and little bit kind of suggesting or pointing out the hollowness of Catholicism and Christianity so that Maria is, is a, a hugely observant figure but as you say Maria has a you know the Immaculate Conception and, and Mary and, and her relationship with Joseph and to some extent are they presenting Joe nearly as a an inverted Christ-like figure nearly or a parody of a Christ-like figure where he's two mothers instead of two fathers being kind of his own mother and, and, and Maria and he's this is this is what a, a failed uh, Christ-like figure looks like he's just kind of a bit of a drunk and he gets a bit sad and he's just a you know short-tempered but ultimately well-meaning insignificant character and that this is the, the hollowness of Christianity is it's all kind of made up things tied to symbols and the pre-existing kind of pagan rituals and things like that but i i, I don't know it's a, it's a difficult one to interrogate and one 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 thing i had uh, had to be given or read in, in in the notes of my book rather than, than picking myself but on her journey to go shopping for the cakes and things like that she does make the uh if you trace that uh path she takes uh it it, it forms the figure of a cross with uh, nelson's pillar at the center of it uh Again, tying into Joyce, Joyce was, and I'm adamant of this, he had a map of Dublin and traced out the lines of the, the motions of the different characters. So there is a, there is a degree of significance to, uh, to the paths that different characters take, and the characters in two galants at the beginning moving, uh, moving around in a, in a circle around Dublin. And again, I suppose the, the circularity, the, the, the idea of a circle is, is, is one that we've seen in a few of the religious images that Joyce has presented. And, and again, the circularity of uh, Maria's face on a side on view, considering her nose and, and, and chin nearly touch, kind of creating a circle there. So again, highlighting a little bit the religiousness, but again, a struggle to understand exactly what Joyce's message or narrative here is uh, with regard to religion, other than highlighting its false, falseness or hollowness. Yeah, I'm I'm always a little bit reluctant with with some of those interpretations, particularly around the the path and the the, the path matching the cross and so on. For me, it it stems into the realms of of I don't know conspiracy theories or numerology or something where you're you're finding patterns out of nothing. But I don't know. I I didn't notice it myself, but maybe there is something there, and 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 perhaps the whoever had 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 spotted that also had some other grounding for it. For me, I think Maria is. Again, if, if we compare her to a kind of like a Mary-like figure, she is this very religiously observant, but also observant of society's rules. And you can see that, you know, what is what is the outcome for a character like her in modern day Dublin? It's not to be venerated as, as the mother of Jesus. It's, it's ultimately this quite sad life. But I also I, I I'm not I'm not fully committed to that reading either. I'm also still puzzling it out a bit. But there's 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 so much symbolism, religious symbolism in there, and and the naming that it's it's hard not to at least uh, address that that lens in some way. C- certainly, you have to uh, acknowledge it. I suppose the other one to to briefly touch on just before we kind of finalize is um probably the nationalistic interpretation or the internationalistic interpretation and the role of Maria as a cipher for Ireland, possibly um. Reading the gentleman, I've 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 heard suggested could be representing England or, or or the British or the English rule in in Ireland and that kind of charming, but drunk and and overbearing personality. I do wonder is there is there something in that? But again, not a huge amount to go on. Much more difficult, I would say, than than some of the other stories to properly interrogate or interpret or to draw a, a, a significant meaning from. Yeah, yeah, I I think this kind of this idea of a 
an old or, or in some ways damaged lady is is, is often seen as a, a symbol for Ireland. So that kind of leads you to that. But I, I don't think there's too much more supporting it in the text. You know, there are some other characters in both in Dubliners and in say Ulysses. You have this this milk woman at the start of Ulysses, which is similar sort of character from Maria seems to be quite caring and, and looking after other people. But I think the the symbolism there is more explicit, whereas here I don't really see it so much. But yeah, I, I think that's it then from, from me on this story. Did you have any anything else you wanted to address? Really, as always, we like to give a, a personal feelings on the, on the story at the end. Um, I don't know, do you want to start or should I? Yeah, I, I can go. So I like this story. I think it's stylistically very different to the, the ones that have immediately preceded it. We've kind of had these uh, yeah, laddish almost characters kind of drinking and, and, and messing around in the pub. And so this is a big tonal shift and I feel like it sticks out a lot because of that. The language used is not as sophisticated, I think partially because Joyce wants to adopt this free and direct discourse where he's representing things from Maria's point of view. And so the story has this this almost like childlike quality to it, but it's it's diffused with like a sadness that I think uh, the overall impact is, is, yeah, it's something that kind of stuck with me. So yeah, I, I quite like it. Yeah, no, I, I, I actually don't know if I like it. If I'm completely honest, as you say, stylistically, it's, it's, it's different to a lot of the other narratives. It doesn't have as much of the cleverness, I would say, or at least it's not as explicit as, as some of the other stories where Joyce is very intentionally doing witticisms or, or, or clever kind of wordplay and things like that. But, and as well, I, I think it's, it's, it's a challenging story. The nature of the free and direct discourse in this one makes it more challenging to interpret or to give it to a, a significant or direct meaning. So I, you know, not one of my favorites, but an an interesting story and a, and a nice um, insight into cultural traditions in Ireland, and really centers that idea of Irish and the the role of Ireland in in Halloween traditions. Interesting as a cultural touch point, not not so much as a as a story underpinning Dubliners. Yeah, this is one of the episodes we had the most disagreement on, so not surprising that we would then come to different uh, different takes on the story at the end. So. Um, that's that's that for play. Join us next month. We'll be talking about a painful case. And if you thought this was a a grim story, uh, next month's painful case is ten times worse. I can assure you. But uh, yeah, even more even more repressed than Maria, perhaps. Definitely. So uh, look, I've been Locking Coin. I've been John Feather. Thanks very much for listening. Bye.